You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We bring you law, facts, and history that will inform national security law and policy. I'm Elisa. Hello, Yvette. How are you? Hi, Elisa. Still living in the free world for now. So far, so far, but we got to watch out for uh, some of these platforms, right? Are you on Facebook? Instagram, Twitter. Instagram, Instagram is Facebook, right? That's correct. All right. Have you seen The Social Dilemma or have you read Shoshana Zaboff's Information Capitalism? Have you been peeking in on my Netflix queue again? Yeah, that's me. Checking out, have you checking ever- out my Libby queue <gasps> for my audiobooks. <laughs> we're, you know, we're the erudite inside the Beltway types, but I'm sure you've heard of Alex Stamos. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, he is a cybersecurity expert who has most recently partnered with Chris Krebs former director of the Cybersecurity Information Agency. He was the chief security officer of Facebook, where he took on the job of trying to mitigate information security risks to the company and safety risks to the 2.5 billion people on Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. Alex also led the company's investigation into the manipulation of the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And I think that led to the publication of information operations and Facebook that examined his findings. Before joining Facebook, Alex was the chief information security officer at Yahoo, and he is a Greek American. Yeah, they got it. There you go. And he's from Sacramento, Sac of Tomatoes, and uh, he is the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, um, which everybody should find out about. It is an interdisciplinary center dedicated to understanding and mitigating the harms that cause the abuse of Internet platforms. I like the way it's like the abuse of the Internet platforms not the abuse by the internet platforms. Nicely worded. All right. And he's with us this week to explain the micro-targeting algorithm. So get out your pencils. He's going to tell us precisely how it has contributed to our growing social differences. And maybe he'll tell us what we can do about that. Alex, we are so excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's jump right in with the basics. Can you just tell us, right, for people who have been living under a rock or also part of our audience, new um, people to cyber law and just understanding this whole technology scene, what is an algorithm and how does it work? You know, the word algorithm really only refers to a sequence of instructions that are run by a computer, right? So, you know, as we talk here, my voice is being massaged, compressed, sent over the internet, decompressed, playing in your earphones. You know, there's probably 100, 120 algorithms sitting between us right now. And so the, the term's actually a little bit overused. And, and in fact, kind of in DC circles, I think it's become a little bit of a shibboleth for people who are looking for a little bit of an easy answer to some of these problems that are actually really complex and human um, and are generally not algorithmic. But, you know, an, an algorithm is just, it's just software. Um, when we talk about these things, there's there's two or three algorithms that people care about. So there's the ranking algorithm for what somebody sees in a social media app, right? So the importance of these is really dependent on the platform. So when you talk about like a Facebook or Twitter, the thing that primarily determines what you see is who you're following and who your friends are. But then once the system kind of assembles the things that your friends have said recently, or the this pages and the people you're following, then there's a ranking algorithm that shows what's up top and what's what's below. On a, a platform like TikTok, and to a slightly lesser extent, YouTube, 
a huge amount of what people see from one point to another is algorithmic. And so depending on the platform, the algorithm can have a different amount of control over the ranking of where stuff shows up. And then there's recommendation algorithms, which are the algorithms that often, like if you're part of a Facebook group, it'll say, here are some other groups you might be interested in, and that can have good uses, like, uh, oh, you're part of a knitting group, here's another knitting group, or it can be bad uses, like you're part of this Stop the Steal, here's another group uh, that's even more radical. And then there's algorithms related to advertising, which depending on the exact platform, effectively kind of intelligently try to figure out what ads are you interested in. Um, and that is both the source of the success of a lot of these companies, as well as something that has occasionally been abused. So let's dig a little bit more deeply into the second algorithm that you were talking about. The reason that this is a pretty timely topic is that there is a concern about how polarized our country has become and the rapidity of that being driven by the fact that everybody is in these social media, on these social media platforms and these algorithms and the way they serve up content seem to be driving that wedge a lot more quickly than we've seen in the past. Can you can you just kind of talk about a little bit more about how extremist content is getting served up? Yeah, so I, again, I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic of this. So it, it's become a, a, like kind of the conventional wisdom that polarization is driven by algorithms and the actual kind of evidence-based social science research is much more mixed, right? And political polarization is something that has been growing in the United States for decades now and has its root in a lot of things, but including media polarization, which is something that greatly predates modern social media and reaches back for those of us who are old enough, you know, into the talk radio era, the growth of Fox News, you know, the, the creation of kind of um, very politically biased news outlets and then the, the creation of kind of counter outlets on the other side. Now that is probably been accelerated by social media, but you have both algorithms and you have individuals self-sorting. And I think that's one of the challenges of trying to figure out the root cause here is that you're not just talking about computers kind of making decisions. What you're talking about is the collective decisions by millions of people of what they want to see and who they want to associate with online. And, and that's why this becomes a lot more challenging because you can't just really tweak an algorithm to fix that. You have to think about what kind of the emergent properties are of these products based upon what kind of features you provide people to, to, to isolate themselves. But like I said, there's some social science research by folks like Brendan Nyan at Dartmouth, Kevin Munger uh, at Penn that demonstrate that in some cases, social media use is connected actually to a broader, people being exposed to a broader array of news and outlets than people were before. And I think there there is some kind of basic logic here too of everybody kind of imagines that there's some kind of magical era in which your blue collar Trump voter came home and spread out seven newspapers and is like, oh, am I going to read the FT or the Economist tonight? And that's just like a, a, an era of media consumption that didn't really exist. We did have like much more control by corporate media that, you know, there are way fewer voices and there's, you had a couple of TV stations and such, but you know, that started to fall apart again in like in the eighties and nineties and with the creation of especially the right wing media. And so I'm not, I'm not super convinced. And I, I don't think the evidence is, is super convincing that algorithms are, are driving a lot of this. A lot of it is people's individual choices. Okay. Well, on that score, I want to push back on you just a little bit, which is that part of this talk about algorithms has to do with the micro-targeting algorithm. And it does tend to give you more of what you want, but sometimes it's a little bit more extreme of what you want. And it does 
in a sense, inch you toward the availability of information. I do, I do agree. And I know you're from Sacramento and I think some of the um, biggest, I think, right-wing personalities actually started right there in Sacramento. I mean, Rush Limbaugh was the the big one here and he was on uh, 1530. I remember it was a big deal there in SAC when he went national. People were, were unfortunately, people are very proud from SAC when, when he became a big figure. Yeah, but I think what happens on social media, correct me if I'm wrong, and I want to defer to you entirely on this, but this micro-targeting algorithm, in a sense, it does inch you toward the availability of content that may be more extreme of whatever your previous Velshenshone might be. If you're, you know, this blue collar worker who recognizes that all of manufacturing in the United States has been outsourced to overseas and you're living in a Rust Belt town and you can't unload your house because it's underwater, sure, um, maybe it'll inch you toward more and more anger about, say, China. Am I correct in that? Is that how that functions? Sometimes. Again, it, it's very mixed and it's not simple. And it's very difficult to disambiguate what decisions machines are making from what decisions individuals are making. So for example, there's, you know, people talk a lot about like the fact that there are some right-wing personalities that do really well on Facebook. So like Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino and such. There's no evidence that that's because of some kind of artificial algorithm pushing it. It's because millions of people go and like their pages and check their pages every single day and then incessantly go and share it, right? And so I think, you know, when you look at the, we did a lot of work around the election disinformation in 2020. We have a project running right now on vaccine disinformation. Um, so you can read the report on the election at eipartnership.net. So it's called the Election Integrity Partnership uh, that we ran with three other institutions. When we look at what was really driving election disinformation, it wasn't like either small fake accounts it wasn't Russians or Iranians or any foreign influence. And it, I don't think there's a lot of good evidence for it being algorithmic. It was the fact that you had millions of politically motivated people who were basically taking instructions from verified influencers that would one kind of prime them for to find fault. So, you know, you had months and months of Donald Trump and his surrogates telling people that the election was going to be stolen. And that created this mental model where any little evidence they saw that they would like they're being handed a sharpie to vote with and sharpies happen to bleed through ballots which is something that's totally normal and okay and taken into account by voting machine manufacturers that that is evidence of a conspiracy and so then they had the, those instructions and they'd go create content and then that content in some cases would get big on its own in most cases would grow a little bit until again a big right-wing influencer would pick up one of these things and then amplify it out to their hundreds of thousands or millions of followers and then those millions of people would amplify it out too and so that's you could use the term algorithm for it what i really I, I think the issue here is really kind of product affordances on amplification is that effectively rush limbaugh was able to build this audience because he had kind of economic backing and he worked as part of a business that had the ability to, you know, send out hundreds of thousands of watts of AM radio across the country that now anybody can do that because they can build a following and an audience that will go amplify their message on their behalf. And that is less about algorithms and much more about the design of the products and how they have built a economic model for influencers where the economics all line up that it's better to be radical and it's better to have truly radical fans. 
can we talk a little bit about how this content has been monetized? Because I, I think that that's sometimes lost in the discussion about why this extremist content is allowed to proliferate on these platforms. And it actually is a profit center, right? There is a, there's a financial incentive for people to distribute disinformation. Right. So there's kind of direct and indirect monetization depending on the platform, right? So some platforms just pass through money, right? So the best example of that, probably the most important one is YouTube, where YouTube will show ads during people's videos, during their live streams and such, and then will revenue share with the content creator. And so that has created this interesting challenge for YouTube in that they effectively now have to have two different kinds of content moderation strategies. One strategy is around what is allowed to be on YouTube, and then the other is around who's allowed to profit, right? And so the term is demonetization for turning off uh, the revenue sharing, and that's become very controversial among right-wing figures saying that they're demonetized and such. Um, and then there's places like Instagram and Facebook where you know, those companies don't share money directly with the creators, but they find other ways to make money, right? They they have memberships, they sell merchandise, they have advertising themselves, uh, especially as part of things like live streams and such. And so, you know, that one, it, this has become like a very sketchy economy, like especially on Instagram, in that it somewhat ironically, because Instagram doesn't do revenue share, it creates a incentive for individual influencers to make money somehow. And so they go and there's been a number of scandals of influencers on Instagram kind of pitching stuff without declaring that they're being paid to do so. Um, you know, it, it'd probably be more legitimate if Instagram showed the ads themselves and then did a revenue share under some kind of rules instead of these influencers do it themselves. And, and effectively you have the same kind of thing with some of the right-wing content mavens of pushing ideas and not really knowing who's sponsoring them. And then you have a couple of the new kind of smaller platforms, the Gabs and the Parlors and like, which aren't making money um, and seem to be, at least like in the case of Parlor, we know that Parlor is supported by Rebecca Mercer, she of Cambridge Analytica fame um, and a, a famous kind of power behind right-wing politics. Um, and so there are some platforms that seem to be being supported just for the purpose of carrying some of this content and how that their economic relationships work with their biggest influencers is unclear at this point. Let me take a different tact here. One of the one of the issues you've mentioned, obviously, is the proliferation of false information. And, and there's no way to get around the fact that there's an enormous amount of extremist content. But one of the examples, I think, and I'd like to take something from outside the United States, because sometimes I think it's easier for people to hear. Um, it was the live streaming of the Christchurch mosque massacre. There was really no way to pull that down timely. And I think one of the concerns that people have, one of many, and particularly one of the concerns of members of Congress, is that there's really no way to real-time police these platforms at all. And that this information and this kind of thing, which can then be downloaded, which can be used to radicalize more people, really just can't be captured, even whether through an algorithmic or a human solution. And well, I'd like to know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, the live streams are definitely one of the riskiest products that these companies ship. And in fact, is is something that I think has often been shipped, including like Facebook Live, which is that product uh, that was involved in the Christchurch massacre, uh, have been shipped too early and without the appropriate safeguards put in place. That being said, even if you're spending time on it, it is a naturally difficult thing to moderate these things in real time, especially if the streams aren't going viral on their own. And and that's the truth, you know, the 
the the Christchurch massacre is an example of a couple of different things. One is the interplay between really radical platforms and mainstream platforms. So the person who did that, and we're not going to use his name, obviously, was a, a big fan of a known, very lightly moderated platform in which people talk about really, really horrible things. And there's a lot of radicalization of individuals on it, but does not have any video or streaming capability itself. It's all text. Um, and so on that site, he basically said, you know, he posted links to his manifesto, and then he posted a link to his Facebook live stream minutes before he went in and started his murderous rampage. And then that live stream was only seen by in the order of dozens of people, but it was enough people on that that they recorded it in real time. So those people, you know, he used Facebook streaming capability to get out to the people who were, he was interacting with on that forum. They recorded it. And then even though Facebook took the original stream down, the thousands of people on that site started trading it with one another and then started re-uploading it hundreds of thousands and then millions of times over the next several days um, and trying to and did so in a way where they would modify the video to try to get around the automatic blocks the companies put in place. And so it's one of those real difficult things is like, how do you moderate these streams in real time, especially ones that don't have a huge number of viewers? And I think one of the things companies have tried to do in the past is if something goes truly viral, then a human being will look at it, right? If you have a stream that has a couple dozen people and then there's a thousand people all of a sudden watching the stream in real time, then that will be an alert for a human uh, moderator to go log in. But if you only have a couple dozen people seeing it, then that kind of kind of disappear into the noise. And so you have to rely upon some kind of machine learning algorithm to flag that as being problematic. And some of those things have been built since since Christchurch, and there's been some effectiveness. You know, we haven't had a direct kind of example of a Christchurch-like situation since then. Um, but that doesn't mean that the protections are perfect. And I think it's it's quite possible somebody will be able to do that again. Okay. Well, nevertheless, I guess the question that I have for you is, you're talking about a product launch that's too soon. I mean, we've seen this play out more recently in other fora where the platform was used, a platform was used to live stream other events, certainly not atrocities on the scale of what occurred at Christchurch. But I still don't hear you saying that there is any way to capture this stuff in real time and, and pull it down. And my question to you is, is this something that is they're using an ordinary sort of a mini to one algorithm to identify something that's anomalous? Is there a better way to do it? Is there something technologically based on your expertise that you think could be implemented? Maybe it isn't being implemented for reasons of cost or scale or other factors. Yeah, so number of companies, I expect Google and Facebook would be the ones that have invested the most here because they have the largest live streaming platforms. Those companies have invested a bunch in trying to look at video and audio in real time and try to determine whether it's violating. Machine learning is much dumber than people think, right? So, you know, you can't just build an AI system and tell it, I want you to find violence you have to do is you have to give it examples of what you want it to find. And in the case of something like Christchurch, if you're trying to find something like that, then you might be looking for images of violent actions or bloody actions. You might be looking for the, the kind of first person shooter uh, model he used because he was using like a GoPro on a helmet. You might actually do it off of audio. You might try to listen for gunshots on audio. Um, audio is, is in some ways easier to process in real time than video. So there are things you can try to build it on, but then what you're doing is you're building a, a machine learning algorithm that's specifically tied to that very exact 
situation, right? So trying to predict all of the bad things that can happen and then training on all of those bad things is, is where this gets difficult. And before Christchurch, a lot of kind of the, the scanning of live streams for violent activity, a lot of it was actually related to ISIS. And that was trained off of things like ISIS beheading videos. And then you end up with significant false positives on things like the ISIS flag, where, you know, a BBC News uh, segment could very possibly have an ISIS flag in it as part of a legitimate news segment. And so, you, you know, you always have this kind of back and forth. And so there, there are things you can try to do, but it's, it's, it really is hard. And it's, it's hard to do it ahead of time. It's much easier that once you know that this is the bad kind of thing you're looking for, that you can try to build protections against it. Probably realistically, you, you have to mostly have a large number of human moderators who are flagged when anything is suspicious. And you also have to make it really easy for people to report. And that was the the other thing that happened here is because the people that he had sent the link to were not randomly selected humans from around the globe, but were specifically people who were part of this white supremacist forum, they were intentionally not reporting the video. And so you can't always rely upon user reporting, but you, know, you need to make that as easy as possible and as fast as possible, especially in a live stream situation. Okay, but you're emphasizing the cost and the resources that are needed to do a lot of this. And I, I've heard you speak in other uh, situations in which you've discussed sort of the challenges that smaller platforms will face when they really don't have the resources. You mentioned Parler and Gab really aren't turning any kind of a profit. But let's talk, I call right. them mini-me's mini um, pop-up platforms. So a lot of them for our listeners are self-styled free speech platforms. But, and so I have two questions for you. You've mentioned that it doesn't appear to you that they're monetizing the service, if you want to call it that, that they're providing. So I don't understand if they're not making any money, how they can even police this stuff. And it, I, I imagine it's a situation and it appears to be at least at this point in history, a situation where they really aren't. Right. So, I mean, first off, I don't think for whatever how much money they want, Parler and Gab are not going to police for disinformation, right? Like they're they're intentionally set up to host this stuff. Gab does monetize. Gab sells stuff directly. They also sell memberships. They, they have like a pro subscription. I don't know whether they're profitable or not. It seems unlikely, but they do sell a Parler. I was saying it doesn't seem to have a monetization strategy and is effectively like a charity run by right wing donors. So taking aside from them, right, like the Aside from them and the Kiwi Farms and the Eight Coons and the 4chans and the sites that intentionally host stuff because that is their decision to do so, this is a serious problem for kind of the long tail of user-generated content sites or social media sites and that, you know, trying to catch up with the big giants that have spent billions of dollars on content moderators and on tooling over the last decade is really hard. And it is... Often the harms of these sites are less because the audiences are smaller. Um, although obviously you have these situations where you have like really specific harms, uh, such as a, a you know live stream violence, where the number of viewers does not really matter as to how much human harm there was. And so it, it is a complicated issue and it is difficult if you start a site. And I think I keep on running into these companies that will add some kind of social component or some kind of messaging component and they don't understand that when they do so they invite a, a huge amount of abuse and probably the best example of that is actually direct messaging that if you allow human beings to message each other privately a huge number of bad things happen especially if you can look up strangers and then especially especially if you can look up strangers who might be children um and that is like kind of the other you know we do a lot of work around child safety 
non-consensual intimate imagery, aka revenge porn. But the the kind of child sexual exploitation side and the adult sexual exploitation side is is in some ways much worse than the disinformation problem, and certainly much more acute harm to to the people involved. And so you'll have a game will add a messaging component, and then all of a sudden they'll end up with a sextortion problem, uh, where adults are extorting children for naked photos and they don't know how to handle it and they, they weren't able to predict that. And so one, I think we need more education around this. This is why I actually teach a class at Stanford on this. We're writing a textbook. We're trying to talk more about this so that if you start a platform, you can learn from the mistakes of the bigger companies and you can make totally new mistakes at least, but at least you know, you know what, what's come before. And then I think what we're also gonna see is we're gonna see a growth of third parties that provide some amount of scanning and moderation services at, as an external service. And so just like you can have a managed service provider provide you security services, that you'll have a, a managed service provider that can do some content moderation for you. Although nobody's really broken out in that field as, as being a real leader yet. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.